Psalms 143. It's funny how the Lord does things. I don't know why we say that, but uh, we just, I, me personally, I'm always surprised and delighted when I see the Lord coordinating things. And uh, part of the reason I could finish that verse in Psalms 143 that uh, Miss Ina wrote on her card that Ken was reading, it ain't I'm that spiritual that I just knew what it said. That's part of our text tonight, amen? And so I had it in my notes right in front of me, and uh, a lot was said tonight about prayer and how God hears and answers our prayers. And so I think you'll see how the Lord will use that in the message tonight. Let's begin reading in verse number 1, Psalms 143. We'll read the entirety of this psalm, just 12 short verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. The psalmist begins this way. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness, and enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul, he hath smitten my life down to the ground, he hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me, my heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I put my trust, cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies, I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God, thy spirit is good, lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble." And of thy mercy cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul. For I am thy servant. Let's stop and pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the word of God tonight. I'm so humbled to get to be here in this place. And Lord, my heart is so knit to these people that are here. I thank you for their presence and their faithfulness on this midweek service, Lord. But most of all, I want to thank you for your presence. Lord, we've already felt and experienced your presence here tonight. We know you are personally in this place, seeking to minister through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. And I pray that we would allow you to, Lord. An eternal and meaningful work can only be done if we'll allow you to work in our hearts and minds. So help us to be obedient to you tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all these things. And we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. When we come to the 143rd Psalm, we find David in a distressed state. Uh, When you read the first uh, six verses of this passage, and you know the passage sort of divides itself in that manner, the first six and then the second six, it frames for us a little bit of what David was going through. And then David will go on afterwards to describe several things that he wants the Lord to do for him. You know, I started saying a long time ago that I don't, I don't preach series anymore. Sometimes I'll preach uh, some sermons in sequence that happen to be from the same passage and happen to have a lot to do with each other. Amen. But I, I went through that thing like most pastors, I guess, do where I started too many series that I didn't finish. And so uh, I don't know what the Lord will 
will do with uh, this passage. I will tell you this is the worst possible time to start a series. That's why I'm not doing it. Uh, because next week we're going to be doing praise, prayer, and pie. And uh, that'll be a little bit different. And uh, then, of course, it's the holiday season. A lot of people are uh, traveling and, and have family in and things like that. But this, I believe, is what the Lord has for us tonight. And so if the Lord were to allow me to preach a series of messages... Here's what I would title them, the desires of a distressed heart. David is in a troubled condition in this passage of Scripture. And there are three statements or three sort of uh, afflictions that he is dealing with that he hints at in the first six verses. Once you notice them with me, verse number one, he says this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. Now, that's not an unusual statement. For David to make, not an unusual statement for any believer to make. As we talked about tonight, prayer is one of the fundamental components of the life of the believer. And I like what Brother Ken said. It's God's personal touch on the life of the believer. It's how we communicate to God and bear to Him our deepest heart's desires. And if you're not praying, there's something wrong in your Christian life. If prayer is not a part of your relationship with God, then your relationship with God is nowhere near what it needs to be. And you're missing one of the greatest resources of strength and uh, and of power and of comfort that God makes available. So that in and of itself is not a surprising request. Then notice what he says next. He says, in thy faithfulness, answer me. Now, that's an interesting statement. There's a lot of reasons a person might answer you. They might answer you because they like what you said. They might answer you because they have something pertinent to what you have asked. They might answer you because they care about you. And all those are very valid reasons to answer. But evidently, David was not leaning upon any of those things. Instead, he says, Lord, in your faithfulness. Because you're an unchanging and immutable God, and because I know that you keep your promises, I'm trusting in those promises as the groundwork for why I'm expecting an answer from you. He says, in thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. Then he says something interesting in verse 2. He says, enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. By the way, this isn't my message tonight, but you'd say, well, preacher, how can a man be justified? Well, he's got to die first. Amen. This ain't my message, but you got to die on Christ's cross in the person of Jesus in order to be justified before the eyes of God. But when we consider what David is saying here, when he says, enter not into judgment with thy servant, let me put it this way does not seem like he has the most warm, personable relationship and interaction with God at this time in his life. If we were to paraphrase what he's saying, it's almost like he says, God, I'm just begging you to answer me. And I'm not begging you because I deserve it. I'm not begging you because I'm praying well. But I'm asking you in your faithfulness and in your righteousness to answer me. And Lord, I'm just praying and begging that you wouldn't put your judgment upon me because I'm undeserving of of your love and, and of your favor. And I certainly am deserving of your judgment. But you know, Lord, at the end of the day, there's nobody around that could stand before you in their own merit, in their own favor. So God, even though I don't deserve it, I'm just begging you to please answer me. Now, there have been times that I've prayed prayers like that in my life, but can I tell you the times those were? They were times when I wasn't getting an answer from God. That's sort of what David sounds like here. 
He's praying. And let me say it this way. It was a season of silence in his life. Uh, prayer uh, was a was a present element in David's life. And you read through the Psalms and he prayed often. And evidently there were times that God answered, as the psalmist will ask here in a moment, speedily. But he wouldn't have prayed the way that he prayed here and through the rest of the psalm if God had been answering him. And so instead, he was going through this period of time where faith was being exercised in his prayer life because he was not feeling anything when he prayed. He wasn't hearing from God. He wasn't getting the answer that he desired. And he is struggling with the fact that though he's reaching out to God, he doesn't seem to be hearing back. I wish I could tell you that every time that you go to pray, that it's going to be this remarkable, dynamic, spiritual experience. But I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. If you've figured out how to make your prayer life that all the time, please see me after the service. <laughs> I'll get some of those dollar bills that, that Ken took out of the offering plate, and I'll give them to you, amen, so that you can teach me how to do that. Because if your prayer life's like mine, man, sometimes, and I know God loves me, and I know he's not forsaken me, but I just go through seasons of silence, and it's one of the most agonizing things in the life of the believer. When you really need God and you do know that he's there, but you just can't seem to get a hold of him. And so his heart is distressed because it's a season of silence. Verse three, he describes some of what he's going through in his circumstances. He says, for the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I'd say it this way. It was a season of silence, but evidently it was also a season of suffering. He describes some outward persecution that he's experiencing. And it's interesting how David attributes it. He says, the enemy. And if you wonder who he means when he says the enemy, you can find the answer in the next few words. He says, hath persecuted my soul. He's not just describing an outward battle, but an inward battle. He's, we would probably say it in this way, man, the devil has just been giving me a fit. He's fighting me at every turn. And then he says this, he hath smitten my life down to the ground. In other words, David says, I just feel beat down over what I'm going through. He says, he hath made me to dwell in darkness. What does he mean? Well, you can, you can define it however you want, but it sounds like discouragement, depression, being disheartened. And the truth of the matter is, man, sometimes spiritual battles get so intense that they begin to weigh on you and they can drag you down. And that's why he makes the next, uh, or the statement at the end of verse four, he says, my heart within me is, is desolate. In other words, empty and, and dry and I'm suffering. He says at the end of verse 3, as those that have been long dead. In other words, what does a person do when they've been long dead? Well, they decompose. He says this thing, it's, it's wearing on me. And then he says something that you have probably often said, and I know I have said, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed. He says, man, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed at what I'm going through. And he says, my heart within me is desolate. So he's going through a season of silence. But he actually also had some real problems taking place in his life. Some spiritual warfare. It was a season of suffering. And then he says this. And I'm going to pick up at verse 4 and read into verses 5 and 6. He says, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. Now think about this last phrase. My heart within me 
is desolate. It's empty. It's dry. It's like a, it's like a waste howling wilderness, like a desert place. Verse five, he says this, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. So what's he going through? Oh, it was a season of silence and a season of suffering, but it was also a season of staleness in his life. Spiritual stagnation. It wasn't that he didn't love God. It wasn't that he didn't want God. But through the circumstances he was experiencing, this desolation was brought into his heart. And now it's almost like David says, man, I remember what it used to be like. Don't you know that David sat there and he remembered the day that they brought the ark uh, back to uh, Israel, back to Jerusalem. The days that he danced in the street in worshiping the Lord. The days whenever he sang upon the psaltery the praises of God. The days when he rejoiced in all that God has done. He says, man, I just wish it was like it used to be. One of the things that resonated with me that the pastor uh, preached on last week in the revival is he said, you know, we we worry it can't be like it used to be. And he said, you know, often that is true, but that doesn't mean it can't be better than what it once was. And the truth of the matter is this, if we get so stuck in the things God's done in the past, we're going to miss what God's doing in the present and what God desires to do in the future. God's working even now. David says, I just can't get over what God has done in the past. And, and I wish that was still happening. And you notice the imagery of his language. My soul thirsteth after thee. Man, there's nothing worse than being thirsty. I can handle being hungry, but I can't handle being thirsty. Everywhere I go, I've got a cup of some kind of drink in it. And I'm just, I, I'm constantly sipping on some drink all the time. I can't stand to be thirsty. And he says, you know, that gnawing pain that I'm feeling inside, I'm just thirsting for you, Lord. So it was a season of silence and of suffering and of staleness. It described this distressed condition that he was in. And then David, in the second portion of this psalm, he lists five things that he wants God to do. Now, I want to draw your attention to a reality about this. It is David pinning this down. There's no question about that. This is a psalm of David. This is a human being, an individual whose life, much of which is recorded in Scripture, that we can study and examine his personality and uh, his character. But I also understand tonight these aren't just the words of David. These are the words of the Holy Ghost. And God, in his providence, has preserved this recorded prayer of David for you and I to read. So here's the truth I want you to understand. These are the things that David desired. But if God thought they were unholy desires, he wouldn't have recorded them in the way that he recorded. So I don't think it's inappropriate to say this. These are the desires of a distressed heart, but they are also the demands of a distressed heart. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, they're what David wants, but they're also what he needs. And so David, in many ways, gives voice to the things that often when we're going through these times in our life, that we struggle to know what to ask God for. He tells us what we need during these seasons. He mentions several of them, and our text tonight will be verse 7. We'll come back to it. But I want you to notice the other four, and we'll just sort of read through them. Verse number 8, 
He desires for his mind to be sound. He says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. Verse 9, he asks for his foes to be defeated. He says, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. You know, real spiritual people will say, well, we shouldn't pray for God to smite our foes. Well, funny thing, they ain't ever in a battle when they're saying that. Amen. Amen. There's biblical precedent to pray for God to cast that down those that want to destroy you. Now, I don't think we should get so focused on the destruction of our enemies that we miss the glorification of our Lord. Certainly, we should not become preoccupied with it and view God as our bodyguard that we send out as an assassin to strike down those. We ought to always pray for things to be done in His will. But if you want to be too spiritual to pray your enemies don't get thrown down, God bless you. I ain't going to be that spiritual. I'm going to pray for my enemies to be overthrown. And that's what David, it's not only what he desires, it's what he needs. Verse 10, he says this, teach me to do thy will. He's praying that his path would be clear. He says, for thou art my God, thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. And then in verse 11, he prays for his faith to be strengthened. He says, quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake, for thy righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. So he lists five things. We've read four of them. But tonight I want to preach to you on his very first request. And it's found in verse 7. He simply says this. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Here's what he's praying for. Number one, here's his desire, number one, and it's this, that his prayers would be heard. So, preacher, I'm going through a tough time. What do you need? You need your prayers to be heard. Preacher, I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. What do I need to do? You need your prayers to be heard. Preacher, I don't know what the next step is. Have you prayed about? Preacher, I don't know what I need to do. Have you asked God about? Say, preacher, I don't even need anything. I just need God's comfort. Have you asked for it in prayer? I would say that the preeminent thing that we ought to look to when we're going through difficulties and trials is our prayer life. Now, that's not to the exclusion of the good times. You ought to pray in the good times. But you and I ought to have enough sense. I mean, I'm talking to, I, I, and I could be wrong. You might have got saved a week ago, and I'm unaware of it. But as far as I know, we're, we're here tonight. We're saved individuals, been saved at least a hot minute. Uh, we've been walking with God. And you and I, we ought to have sense enough to know that the number one thing that we should do in any circumstance, but particularly in the midst of trials, is we ought to go to the Lord in prayer. So David sets for us a pattern. He plots for us a course in this desire. And in this, the Holy Ghost reminds us that the first resource, not the last recourse, but the first resource that every believer has is their prayer life. And what we really need is we need to get a hold of God. Notice three simple thoughts and I'll be done tonight. Notice the very first phrase. He says this, hear me speedily, O Lord. Now, this statement seems, if I'm to be honest, rather standard. Dare I even say boring? Of course he's going to ask for this. Of course he's going to request this. Of course he wants his prayers to be heard. But in this simple statement, 
I want you to notice the faith that he wrought. You know, prayer is an activity of faith. It's not an activity of emotion. God's not against our emotions. He created us with emotions. But prayer is not an act of emotions. It is an act of faith. Prayer is not a spontaneous spiritual phenomenon that occurs to us. But rather it's a spiritual activity that we engage in based upon the clear teaching of the word of God and the promise of the Lord. And so just by this simple statement, David is exercising faith. Notice, number one, the evidence of his faith. He says this, hear me. Now, funny thing about it, and some of you husbands will know what I'm talking about. uh, Most people in society don't expect you to read their thoughts. Occasionally, a wife will expect... Her husband to read her thoughts. But generally, you made fun of my overalls. I mean, I got the pulpit now, all right? Generally speaking, we don't expect people to read our thoughts. And have you ever got mad at someone for not replying to something that you said only in your head? I have. You ever got upset somebody didn't do something you asked them to do only to remember that you asked them in your mind and never verbalized it? I've been there. I don't know about you. The very fact that David says, hear me, you know what it implies? It implied he must have prayed. He wouldn't ask God to hear him if he had not prayed. Now, it could be the prayer that he's pointing back to is the beginning verses of this chapter. Although I would tend to believe that it probably goes back even further than that. David being the man of prayer that he was, he was not a perfect man, he was not a spotless man, but a pattern that emerges in his life is that he leaned heavily upon the practice of prayer. Likely the moment he began to experience these things, he had begun to to seek God. And as he sought God, he trusted through that act of prayer, exercising faith that God would hear. You know why we don't pray more? Because we don't really believe in prayer as much as we'd like to pretend we do. The greatest evidence that you believe in prayer is prayer. If we really believe that God will hear us, then why would we not pray? And a great many of us, we just simply and we say, you know, we even sometimes ask the Lord, Lord, give us more faith, give us more faith. But I wonder sometimes if God doesn't look at us and say, why would I give you more when you're not exercising that which I've given you? How often do we say, you know, Lord, give me the faith to pray this way. And God looks at us and says, I don't need to give you the faith to pray this way. You've got the faith to pray that way. Just pray that way. Just come to me. Just seek me. Just request these things. He said, you have not. Why? Because ye ask not. I don't know if that's true about you, but I sure enough know it's true about me. So there in this statement, he is exercising faith. He's praying. He's saying, Lord, hear me. And in that, it's implied that he had been praying already. We see the evidence of his faith, but then notice the insistence of his faith. He says, hear me speedily. I love the boldness that David exercises here. I don't think it's inappropriate. He's not just asking God in some abstract way to someday answer, but he's praying real prayers. Now, let me tell you something. As prayer is an activity of faith, It is of no real meaning if it does not carry with it certain risks to the to the soundness of that faith. Here's what I mean. You say, Lord, I pray you keep me healthy. That's great. I hope God does keep you healthy. I hope he keeps me healthy. 
But you know, that's not a very risky prayer. Most of it, well, I was going to say most of us are just going to stay healthy. I, not eating the way I do, I won't. Amen. But, uh, you know, as a general rule, we say, well, Lord, I, I pray that you'd help me to grow as a Christian. Nothing wrong with that prayer. Pray it all that you can. But understand that there's very little risk associated with it. David, in praying this prayer, he's not just saying, Lord, in some nebulous sense, someday help me in this way, maybe somehow. And then resting in the fact that if he ever happens to pay attention and recall the fact that he prayed that prayer, he has no question that he will in some way be able to attribute to God some praise for that. But he's praying a specific prayer in a specific time frame. You know, a a muscle doesn't grow if it's not exercised. And the muscle of faith in our life, and particularly in our prayer life, it does not grow if it is not exercised. Now, you're going to pray for things sometimes that God, his answer is no. And we must have the spiritual maturity to recognize and desire the will of God above all else. But I'm afraid that we have somehow clipped the wings of our prayer life. We've somehow neutralized its its meaning and its potency by reducing our prayers to just generic things that really a person could never say definitively one way or other whether it was answered. Rather, we should be praying specific things. He's saying, Lord, hear me. And that prayer in and of itself maybe would be one of these generic prayers. But then he adds this word speedily. And it puts a time uh, stamp on it. It, it, it. it turns over the hourglass. He's not praying about something generic, but he's asking God to deliver him from his enemies, to strengthen him, to encourage him. And he doesn't want to be timid in his prayer life. And so he's insistent. And he says, Lord, I'm not just asking you to do something someday to somebody. I'm asking you to work in my life right now such that I can see your hand evidently and such that I can praise you mightily. I see the evidence of his faith. I see the insistence of his faith. But then I see the confidence of his faith. Man, I like this. It says, hear me speedily, O Lord. Now, We have allowed in Western culture the term Lord to become this sort of generic terminology. And I'm aware of that. And there's nothing really be done about it. You are anywhere south of, uh, I don't know, Ohio and you use the term Lord. It's considered part of the, the vernacular of society. You could really mean just about any God or no God whatsoever. But when David uses the term Lord here, it's in all capitals. He's using the term Jehovah. He's speaking about the national God of Israel. He's, he's, talk, hmm, he's talking to a God with a history. History in his life and history in the life of his people. And through that name that he's invoking, it's not just a generic name for God that could be attributed to any number of false, fake, pagan deities. He's talking to the God that parted the Red Sea. He's talking to the God that threw down uh, the armies and enemies uh, that arrayed themselves against Israel. He's talking to the God that had worked mightily in his life. He's talking to the God that had slain the uh, giant, that had slain uh, the lion, that had slain the bear. And when he's praying, he's praying knowing this is a God that is powerful and personal in his life. Why would he pray? Well, he'd pray because he knows God. And I don't just mean he's been introduced to him. I mean, he knows his his uh, credentials. He's read God's resume. He knows what God's already done in his life and in the life 
of others. One of the things that will strengthen our prayer life is to recall often the things that God has done. Time would fail us to do it. But for most people in this room, I could point at you and name something that me and you prayed over that God answered. I'm not talking about just generic things, but I mean, I'm talking about times when your, when your spouse was sick or your kids were sick. I'm talking about times when, when, when tragedy had struck. I'm talking about times when, when you were praying and begging God to give you that promotion or to give you that favor in that matter. And we began to pray and ask God to do something and we joined together and God answered. We need to think back to those things. That bolsters our faith. So I see the faith that he wrought. But then notice his next phrase. He says this, my spirit faileth. I see the faith that he wrought, but number two, I see the failure that he fought. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, he could feel and sense that there was a weakness that was growing within him that he was not going to yield to. You know, uh, when we think about this word spirit in the word of God and the word spirit, as many words in your Bible, can have different connotations depending on the context. Of. And that word spirit, it can really mean about three or four things. We were talking about a little bit in uh, Sunday school uh, on Sunday morning. The word spirit, it can refer to a disembodied being. For instance, the Bible talks about familiar spirits, unclean spirits. And though you may desire to compartmentalize and categorize those in some way, and maybe maybe you can, maybe that's true, maybe not, I, I really don't know. I think we can understand uh, one thing clearly about these beings, that they are disembodied, and most of the time when we see them uh, in the Old Testament, they are doing the will and bidding of Satan. Now, there are times that God, because he has absolute authority, will use them for a purpose, but most of the time, you see them in the employ of Satan. So a spirit can be a disembodied being. A spirit can also uh, refer to the part of a person that interacts with God. In other words, the, the spiritual man, the new man within us. We have been quickened by his spirit and our spirit is now made alive. A lost person lacks the capacity to have a relationship with God. The only way a lost person can have a relationship with God is if the word of God gives him something to pin his faith on that he might be quickened by the Lord. But before that, he's spiritually dead. And he won't happen upon God or stumble upon God because he has no means of relating to God because he is spiritually dead. But the spirit of a man is made alive whenever he's born again. So it can mean that part of us that interacts with God. Spirit can also refer to the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, he is the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Ghost. And certainly the spirit can refer to him. But there's another way in which the word spirit is used. And I think this is how David is using it. It regards the attitude or disposition of a person. You ever met somebody and said, man, they got a bad spirit about it. I was talking about this Sunday morning in Sunday school. We was talking about Georgia football fans. I ain't going to get into a whole thing, but these people, they'll, have you ever, they'll bark at you. I mean, I don't know what it takes to, I know, I know who you're pointing at. Hey, there's some others in here too. I, I, the, we ain't going to get into it. They fly a little lower on the radar than Zach does. But Or have you ever yourself just... I mean, I've been there, man. I've had a bad day, and I just had a bad spirit about it. 
And I think this is the sense in which David is using this terminology. When he says, my spirit faileth, I think he's saying, man, my, my trust in the Lord, my confidence in him is waning. And because of that, my disposition is deteriorating. I have no more joy. I have no more excitement. I have no more vigor. My spirit is failing. But he says, I'm not going to yield to that. Instead, I'm going to do everything I can. Let's use this terminology to keep my spirits up. Notice three things about this battle. It was, number one, it was a personal battle. He says, my spirit faileth. Isn't it funny how when you get in a bad way, I don't know, this may not be true about you. It's true about me. You ever notice, here's how we'll think. Why is everybody getting on my nerves today? Maybe you got your nerves spread out all over the place. Maybe that's what's going on. Why is everybody working against me today? Well, maybe that's not it. See, at the end of the day, your attitude and your disposition is just that. It is yours. And you and you alone control it. David was being persecuted by enemies. But he didn't say, hey, everybody's against me. Like Jacob said in the Old Testament, Said he said this, what's happening is my spirit is failing. I've seen people that are just invincibly joyous in the Lord. I've met people in life that seemed like no matter what they were going through, they could rejoice. Why is that? Because they learned this profound truth one day. Nobody gets to run them but them. Nobody decides their attitude but them. And if they're going to have a sorry spirit, it's going to be because they decided to. And not because anybody made them. I said this back of this and I'll echo it again. Uh, this is radical in the world's uh, perspective today. But you know, at the end of the day, nobody can offend you if you choose not to be offended. That's what the psalmist means when he says, Perfect peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Doesn't mean people don't do offensive things to them. It means they are grounded in the truth of God's word, and they've learned to be okay with other people being wrong without it disrupting their day. And so they've said, as long as I'm standing in truth, that's all that matters. And they've chosen to not allow other people to dictate their disposition. It was a personal battle, number two, and I've already hit on this, so I won't dwell on it. It's an emotional battle. So what do you mean, preacher? I thought this was a thing of faith and not a thing of of emotions, and that's true. But you see, here's the thing you have to decide. Either, Either faith will dictate your reality or your emotions will dictate your reality. God is not against your emotions. And in fact, your emotions can be used for the glory of God. But if the psalmist is saying his spirit is failing, he's recognizing that the part of him that is weakening is not that part of him that is trusting in God, but rather it's that part of him that wants to yield to the flesh and yield to emotion and allow emotion to dictate his disposition and his reality. He recognizes that if he can submit his emotions to God, then God has the ability to master his emotions. You'll be amazed how much peace you'll get in your life when you realize that feelings don't have to be validated, but nor do they have to be enshrined. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, you know, people say, well, you just don't think my feelings matter. No, you just think they matter too much. But preacher, I'm feeling them. Yeah, that's true. Feelings are a thing. But where do they rank in your life? I'm not asking you not to feel something. By the way, neither is God. 
But he's asking you to choose to allow the word of God to have authority and preeminence above the emotions you're feeling and to master them. Your emotions will absolutely master you if you allow them. But let me tell you what can master your emotions, and that's the truth of the word of God. I know, I knew you wouldn't like it when I said it. That's all right. It's a personal battle. It's an emotional battle. But it's also a spiritual battle. My spirit, what does he say? It faileth. What kind of failure is it? Is it an emotional failure? No, because the arm of the flesh fails us every time. See, here's the truth. Your emotions will fail you all of the time. If your spirit has not failed, it's not because your emotions came through for you. Rather, it's because your faith mastered them. And so he recognizes this choice that has to be made in his life. Preacher, I feel this way. I'm not mad at you. What does your faith say? But preacher, I just feel so. I get it. I'm not saying you don't. I'm not even saying you don't have a right. I'm saying it's not in your interest to let that dictate your world. It's instead right to let faith be the predominating element in your life. So I see the failure that he fought. And finally, and I'm done tonight, I see the face that he sought. He says this, hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Two things he mentions here. Notice number one, he mentions the remedy. He says, I just need to see the face of God. That's a bold statement. That's a big ask. How could a person see the face of God? What's the remedy to this crisis he's experiencing? How can his prayer life be bolstered? How can he seek the Lord with more confidence? How can he do this? Well, do you remember there was a moment in the Gospel of John Whenever Philip came to Lord Jesus and he said, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. Now, I don't think he was asking to see the backside of his glory like Moses had. I don't think he was just asking to see the tip of the hem of his garment. I think Philip was saying, show us God and we'll be happy. Jesus looks at him and says, Philip, have I been so long time with you? And thou hast not known me. Boy, that's a convicting statement. That's a message that may be coming to a pulpit near you. <laughs> Have I been so long time with thee, and thou hast not known me? Then he said this, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. You say, that's good, preacher. I'm glad he sure set Philip straight. Oh, but now wait a minute. John told us this in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Then down in verse number 14, he said, the word was made manifest and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory like as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. David says, show me the face of God. He didn't know at that very moment the Holy Ghost was using his pen as a paintbrush to draw it out on pages for you and I these thousands of years later. Here's the truth. You say, preacher, what do I need? You need this book. You want to know him? You'll find him here. Get in this book and learn him. And here's the reason that he gives. Lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Here's what he means. A person that's dying. A person that death is getting ready to sweep over them. And and, and they're getting ready to succumb to that cold grip. And. You think about people very often, at least in the world's perspective, that are terminal for some reason. 
Now, this is a difference between the believer and the lost person. The believer understands that death is not an end. It's not the period. It's a comma. It's not a wall or a pit, but it's a door. We understand that. But he's talking about how lost people behave. And a person that does not have hope in the Lord that's terminally ill, wouldn't you think they'd live with a certain abandon? But instead, here's how they live. They live like they got nothing to live for. Like they're just waiting for things to fall to pieces. And here's what David says. I don't want my life to become that. You know, the sad truth is, it's no wonder a great many lost people don't want to be Christians because so many of us behave like we're walking on a spiritual force death march. As though we are so disheartened and so downtrodden. I don't know when I'm going to preach it, but there, the, when the preacher read the other day out of Romans chapter 8 and he said that the things, the sufferings of this world, they're not worthy to be compared. The Holy Ghost smote my heart and said, so why do you compare them so much? That's what complaining is. It's comparing the sufferings of this world and saying it's so unjust for me to go through this and comparing them to the glories that are yet to be revealed in us. And Paul said, I'm not going to play that game. They're not even worthy to be compared. How dare we live life that way? David says, I'm praying and I'm begging God to hear my prayer and I'm tending to my prayer life because though I'm going through trials, through silence, through suffering, through staleness, I'm not going to become one of those people that walk around acting like the worst thing that ever happened to them was when they became a Christian. So I refuse to be that person. Preacher, what do I need? I'm going through it. You need to pray. You need to seek the Lord. You need to seek his strength. And you say, preacher, what I really need is for God to hear me. Oh, he'll hear you. But you're going to have to seek him first. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I wonder if there might be somebody. and say, Brother Toby, I'm going to start right here and now. I'm going to seek the Lord about this matter in my life. Far too long I've allowed myself to walk around and through my attitude tell the world that the devil is one when that's not true. And instead, I'm going to cast myself upon the rock of his of his grace and his mercy and I'm going to seek him in prayer tonight, begging for his favor and his help. The altar is open. I invite you to come. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.